This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour today with me, Cassie Huff. Now, the conditions have dried off a bit in the last few months, but rabbits have been making mo- the most of the situation. There are calls for a, st- a strategic response in South Australia to head off an influx of the pest species, particularly following the River Murray flooding. It be a surefire bet that uh, we will see very uh, rapid increases in rabbit populations because they respond very well to, um, you know, to green feed and uh, an abundance of uh, vegetation. They will be prolific. I know there's quite a few rabbit programs at the moment trying to get on top of them, but I'd be interested to know just how bad is the rabbit situation at your place? There's been a, a number of control measures in uh, the recent years as well as past years. There's obviously the Khaleesi virus and the various iterations of that as well as uh, control measures. So I'd be interested to know, have you noticed a big jump in the rabbit numbers this summer? You can text me 0467922891 or phone 1300222891. We'll also head to uh, Senate Estimates to hear just how long they think Varroa mite, which has been discovered or was discovered last year in, in New South Wales, how long they actually think it had been in the country. It's quite interesting what they think might have been happening there. So we'll get into that soon. But first up today, we've been talking a bit about this lately. Han Van Rees was talking about how the European Union is looking to ban glyphosate and what that could mean for farming. Well, a glyphosate ban in the European Union would have a a devastating impact on global food production and uh, it sends shivers down the spines of farmers according to peak body grain producers Australia. Glyphosate's approval in the EU is going to expire in December this year unless an extension is granted, which some people in the industry believe is pretty unlikely. Andrew Wiedemann is a Rapanyuk farmer in Western Australia and he is the research and development spokesperson with Grain Producers Australia. He says the broad-spectrum weed killer has transformed grain growing in Australia and around the world providing weed control without the need to cultivate and eliminating the horror dust storms of the early 1980s. When it comes to glyphosate, obviously that's probably the world's choice in terms of weed control. And at the moment, the rest of the world and the rest of the exporting countries are all looking at it going, well, uh, that's fine, but it's going to have a huge impact on uh, the amount of grain that's available right across the globe if, if other countries and other exporting countries were forced to actually... Uh, ban and, and not use glyphosate in their farming systems and I think you cast your mind you're probably very young back in 82 but uh, I first came home on the farm uh, in that era and the dust storms that were around then and you look at the way agriculture is today uh, and the way that's transformed and the way that, that we're growing the amount of grain that we're growing it's all on the back essentially of the use of glyphosate. And just for the uninitiated Andrew can you explain why glyphosate is so important and why it's been so important in moving away from that that system where dust storms were a, a regular feature. Yeah, so look, it's a, it's a particular product that is obviously non-residual in terms of its uh, persistence. So it's something that we use and, and have used quite successfully. It's essentially a salt uh, that's, uh, that's the product in the background of it. And so it is it has been proven uh, quite safe to use and... Uh, of course, there are plenty of people out there who um, you know, think otherwise to that, but the reality is as a farmer, 
that we're uh, using it and other farmers are using it as an extremely important product in our farming systems. And, you know, we would essentially halve or perhaps even less than half the uh, amount of grain that would be produced across Australia and also the impact, again, on uh, people even using it in their home gardens and other areas that have used it quite successfully for a very, very long time. And I feel will for quite a while yet um, because there is no other substitute for it globally. And, of course, people want to eat food, but they don't want to starve. Mm, so in, in terms of substitutes, I mean, people talk about paraquat, but that's already banned in other markets as well. So is it really? does it really all hinge on, on access to glyphosate? Uh, look, in modern farming techniques today, absolutely, for no-till systems and minimum tillage. I mean, in the European Union, they're talking about going back and turning the plough again. So if you could imagine turning and ploughing up the country right across Australia, and particularly a lot of arid areas around very dry areas, it just wouldn't be sustainable. So we wouldn't be able to produce food uh, the way that we're doing it at the moment without a substitute for it. And look, certainly Paraquat, it's an S7, so it's uh, a more volatile particular product, particularly for a user. Um, But in terms of its uh, longevity, we also need it because it provides the opportunity to be used in a rotational basis with glyphosate so we don't build up resistance to either product. I guess on the flip side, if you talk to the per- a person in the street, there's a pretty good chance that they're, they're going to have the opinion that glyphosate is toxic and that it shouldn't be used. Uh, that's just anecdotal, but how do you change the, the general public's attitudes toward glyphosate? Well, look, I think it's about telling our story, um, really, and and about just how successful food production is in Australia compared to other parts of the globe and and the environment that we're working in. You know, we're trying to remain as sustainable as possible, Angus, and essentially you're looking at the key fabric for a lot of production systems here in Australia with us being able to use glyphosate because it's such an important product for us and for also the knowledge and safety for uh, the way we produce food. And in other countries, glyphosate is being banned, not necessarily because the science dictates it, but because it's it's politically motivated. Are you confident that the science will continue to prevail in Australia? Uh, look, at this stage, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think just because one other section in the world decides to actually ban it, and it is clearly a motivated political motivation that's causing that, I would hope that uh, the people that are here, the governing bodies and the politicians are very aware of uh, our food production systems and we continue obviously while we're in Canberra to talk to politicians because they come and go uh, and we need to keep the information in front of them about what we do and how we do it and uh, of course we've got to remain vigilant to what's happening in other parts of the world but we also need to be conscious about the impact that we have here as well and and I think that that's the, the key focus for us is purely about education and connection and making sure that the consumers understand where their food comes from and hopefully the, all of these things mean that we'll have a very, very successful farming system for a very long time and the ability to use glyphosate also for a very long time as well until we can find anything that might be a substitute for it, which to my knowledge hasn't been found yet. 
Andrew Wiedemann, Repentant Farmer and Research and Development Spokesperson with Grain Producers Australia, speaking to Angus Verley. Now, to rabbits, because there are a lot of them out there at the moment, so there have been some calls for a strategic response in South Australia to head off an influx of the pest species following the River Murray flooding. Chair of Rabbit Free Australia, Dr Wayne Myers, says the breeding conditions are ideal with landholders and growers likely to see an increase in pests, including rabbits, and he says the action is needed now before the populations build up and cause damage to erosion-prone soil. We can certainly see, uh, um, just from personal observation, see that uh, because we've had this such a uh, an incredibly mild and wet uh, winter period and spring period, rabbit populations are starting to increase. Very surprising to see even now that there are young rabbits around where normally at this time of the year you'd expect to see, uh, you know, the, the young rabbits would have been, uh, well, half, three-quarters grown, whereas there's still the young ones uh, becoming evident because of the, uh, you know, the good conditions that are around. So they've got a, um, an extended breeding season is what you're, you're saying? Oh, yes, exactly so. And uh, if we think about what's happening in uh, eastern Australia, you know, with the very wet conditions we've had over the last, condition, uh, last couple of years, then uh, we can certainly expect it, it would be a surefire bet that uh, we will see very uh, rapid increases in rabbit populations because they respond very well to, um, you know, to green feed and uh, an abundance of, uh, of vegetation and they will, uh, they will be prolific. Are the current control measures adequate to control the this expected boom in population? <clears throat> well, certainly we know that the, you know, the major biocontrols that we have uh, in myxomatosis and uh, Khaleesi viruses will be active and they will uh, you know, certainly have an effect on, uh, on, on controlling the population to some extent. But as we know with viruses, you know, the, over time the viruses become less effective because the populations become uh, a little more resistant and tolerant. And uh, when you get very good conditions, as we've got now vegetation conditions, then uh, you know, the populations breed up very quickly and it takes time for the uh, viruses to have an effect. So we need to be mindful of uh, taking advantage of, for example, when, you know, when we've had flooded conditions, that would certainly suppress uh, populations that are being affected by the floods, but they will uh, recover very quickly because of the abundance of feed around. So we need to take advantage of the lower populations currently and then, uh, for example, take on uh, control measures such as uh, rap, uh, warren ripping and so on to, uh, just to control the populations before they become uh, very large. It's like you nip the problem in the bud before it uh, gets into full bloom, right? Exactly so. And it's, a, it's a lesson we really should uh, adopt a bit more widely in that when we have these kind of uh, natural conditions, uh, you know, floods, fires and droughts, the time to have programs, control programs for uh, you know, feral populations of, of rabbits and, uh, and, and other ferals is when you've got the populations are down, uh, decreased, and then before they uh, get into that, extensive breeding mode, uh, it's a much more effective way of doing it. It would be much more effective programs than trying to fix that, the problem up when it becomes very large. Uh, what further support is needed or where are you looking for support from to enact these control measures? Well, we're really uh, <clears throat> uh, appealing to uh, you know, regional organisations because things like uh, the control of, uh, of pests are best done on a, on a regional scale, particularly things like rabbits, because they don't take any notice of boundaries. And you need, uh, you know, cooperation between uh, between neighbours and that kind of thing. Uh, so we're really looking to encourage those regional programs that uh, start early 
now that we've got, and particularly in those areas that have been affected by floods, that we start to bring in uh, control measures now. Warren ripping is one of the most effective things to do. It's also the time to think about control of uh, other pests like uh, you know, cats, foxes and weeds and rabbits. All of, they, they link together and are interdependent and control measures that, uh, that take on all of those things on a regional scale is, uh, is the ideal way to try and suppress these, uh, these major pests. Chair of Rabbit Free Australia, Dr Wayne Meyer, speaking with Timu King. And if you've seen a big jump in rabbit numbers or you're concerned about it after the floods, text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 It is 17 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Before we get to markets and weather, authorities say the pest Varroa destructor mite could have actually been in Australia for up to a year before it was detected in New South Wales. The bee pest was first discovered at the port of Newcastle in June last year and there are now 114 premises that have been infected since. At Senate Estimates last night, Greens Senator Peter Wish-Wilson questioned Dr Chris Locke from the Department of Agriculture about the response and investigations into the Varroa mite outbreak. The eradication response still falls under the national agreement that it's uh, that's so subject to decision making by the national management group, which I chair. It's met now four times on Bromite. The last time was last Friday. Uh, New South Wales still view eradication as possible, and there's been some positive developments uh, over Christmas with the opening up of hive mobility opportunities outside the the containment zone in the sort of general zone. Could I just drill down onto that word possible? Um, Would they view it as probable? Because I do think, yeah, eradication. I've seen the debate between containment versus eradication. But (coughs) the Commonwealth last time, if I remember rightly, thought eradication was... It is, it is the view likely. of the um, National Management Group, which includes all states and territories and uh, the Commonwealth, and there's about 15 industry participants that eradication is still possible. That, that is... It, it is possible. It's yeah. possible, but yeah. is, it, is it probable? Well, it's still, it's still the preferred approach, which yeah. the strategy is supporting, yep. There are now 112 infected uh, premises... And so the number has um, climbed a little bit, but uh, it's remained stable in the last week. There were a few detections recently, um, and uh, most of well, those. A few. Could you just give us the number again? Oh, I did read it. It went okay. from about 106 to 112, okay. and the identification of these new premises um, was a result of intensive surveillance within the 10-kilometre eradication zone around infected hives. When you say surveillance, uh, um, are you talking about private property here? Or are we also talking about traps in uh, in national parks and, and reserves and other? They've other all areas? been linked properties. There has been some detections uh, which are a result of very localised spread, but there ha- hasn't been any um, detections in national parks that we've uh, been made aware of. We know there was an investigation, a joint investigation underway in Commonwealth and the New South Wales government as to how this happened. Are we any closer to announcing, uh, announcing that? Yes, so Senator, um, so we have been talking to New South Wales about that and because and, uh, they've been leading the investigation, doing the interviews and doing the genomics testing and, and trying to interpret uh, likely causes of, or sites and durations of the incursion. 
as was presented to that inquiry, it, it is going to be imprecise, I think, the answer, but they're working on a number of different hypotheses, hypotheses at the moment, trying to narrow that down. Uh, I think the things they're seeing at the moment is, you know, it was in the country before it was detected on the 20, 22nd of June, maybe could even be a year or so before that, but we're trying to kind of provide that information they will be doing, they are doing compliance work as well, so there's there's a potential that some of the things they cover uncover by their tracking and tracing and interview work might lead to compliance activity, so there is a bit of sensitivity from a compliance angle as to what goes into the public domain, but we're trying to respond to that request uh, in the um, inquiry recommendation to certainly make it very clear what we know and what New South Wales government knows. So there's no investigation into a breach of Biosecurity Acts, federal, federal or otherwise. There's no nothing's been referred to. Uh, the so they're looking at about five or six different scenarios. So whether it came in by air, by port, whether um, it by came mail, off a high by mail. Yeah. So so exactly. So there's about five or six scenarios with different levels of likelihood that they're exploring and equating to the data they have. I think. Uh, the sense is it's not going to give an unequivocal answer, but it might. Is it, does that satisfy you, Dr Locke, given this is a very serious outbreak in the first well, of its kind? Well, I guess it's um, it's whether whether they can answer the question or not is really the question. So, uh, I mean, it satisfies me that they're trying very hard to get to the bottom of it. Dr Chris Locke, Deputy Security for biosecurity and compliance at the Federal Department of Agriculture with other departmental staff appearing before Senate estimates in Canberra last night. So an update there on the varroa mite in New South Wales. We'll head to markets now. John Traeger has the latest markets from Dublin. Good afternoon. Numbers remain similar as agents offered 7,000 lambs and 2,000 sheep to the usual buying group feeders and restockers. Light lambs improved two to four dollars ahead on a better quality selection of merinos, with most coming from the west coast. Trade and heavy lambs sold equal to the previous sale, with the best of the heavyweights peaking at $250 per head. Another good selection of mostly heavier weight mutton maintained the improved rates of the previous sale, with more competition on lighter weights. Extremely light young lambs sold to 129 as medium weights sold to 162 Light older lambs sold from 86 to 128 as light weights ranged from 99 to 136 Medium weights sold from 115 to $150 as heavy weights ranged from 170 to $206 Extreme heavy weights sold from 191 to the sale top of $250 per head I got sold in a wide range reflecting the quality on offer from 129 to 162 as light mutton sold from 68 to 102 dollars. Medium weight mutton sold from 85 to 110 with heavy mutton selling from 112 to 129 dollars. Ram sold from 40 to 62 dollars per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers increased this week as agents offered 300 live weight and open auction cattle. Competition was generally good from a full field of buyers on a fair to average quality yarding with prices improving 15 to 20 cents across the yarding. Pastoral cattle were included from the Hawke at Lee Creek region and these met with strong restock of competition. Villa steers sold from 398 to 442 cents, with villa heifers ranging from 330 to 370 cents. Light yearling steers sold from 376 to 400 cents, as medium weights ranged from 330 to 442 cents, with a few heavyweights selling to 396 cents a kilo. 
Ealing heifers sold from 330 to a top of 370 cents. Grown steers sold to 380 cents, with grown heifers selling to a top of 346 cents. Light cows sold from 100 to 230 cents, with heavy cows selling from 236 to a sale top of 346 cents a kilo. Light bulls sold from 320 to 430 cents, medium bulls made 250 to 355 cents, with extreme heavyweights selling to 240 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. And Tim Delaney has the results from Mount Gambier. Good afternoon, Cathy. Mount Gambier agents out of the 1,006 cattle. Quite was from very good average with a slight drop compared to last week. The regular buyers attended excellent run of the growing season with pen with weight. Young cattle of mixed quality and some good quality cows. Prices vary depending on the quality, with the cows, grown heifers and the younger cattle selling close to unchanged. Bulls eased at 10 to 20 cents and growing steers were 5 to 10 cents a kilogram weaker. Fuller steers made from 380 to 460 cents. Fuller heifers were from 348 to 464 cents. The feeders paid 372 to 420 cents a kilogram for steer dealers. Yielding steers made from 320 to 380 cents. The restockers paid 320 to 399 cents. Yearling heifers sold from 335 to 375 cents. That's the feeders paid from 305 to 386 cents a kilogram. Grown steers made from 320 to 386 cents. That's the feeders paid from 340 to 400. Grown heifers were from 280 to 368 cents. Heavy cows sold from 295 to 322 cents, with younger cows making 338 cents a kilogram as the bull sold mostly from 180 to 280 cents a kilogram. This has been Tim Delane reporting at MLA Mount Gambia. Thanks for that, Tim. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now, where Jenny Horvat has the latest on this warm weather. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. How are things looking across the state? Yeah, look, it is looking pretty warm and very hot in parts, to be honest. So that high-pressure system has now moved into the Tasman Sea and it's directing that pretty warm northerly airstream over the state. So we are looking at um, pretty much hot to very hot temperatures across the state with those very hot temperatures really out out in the west and the north today. We will start to see maybe a bit of a trough of low pressure starting to come across from WA very late across the far west um, today. Not expecting too much with that. Looks like most of the activity will be on the WA side, but we couldn't rule out because we are seeing a little bit of cloud already coming over, a little bit of um, shower activity, but very high base cloud, so not expecting any significant falls and maybe a little bit of lightning near the WA border later today, but most of that action will stay on the other side. So pretty much we'll be looking at uh, a warm night overnight with those hot to very hot temperatures continuing on Thursday east of that trough. So a bit milder in the far west where that trough would have moved through overnight, but elsewhere we are looking at very hot conditions. So we are looking at some elevated fire danger tomorrow. Um, so yeah, just be mindful of that and the CFS is likely to put some bands out over a couple of districts tomorrow with that elevated fire danger ahead of that trough coming across. Again, we're not expecting too much weather the system as it comes through, but we could be seeing a little bit of high base shower activity along the trough and potentially a bit of thunderstorm activity at this stage. Probably looking at that being mostly confined to the very far northwest of the state and maybe the very far southeast as it comes across. They're probably the more likely areas to see some of that activity as it comes through. 
that trough um, continuing to move across the northeastern districts on the Friday there. So very hot again ahead of that system. It will sort of linger up in the far north of the state over the weekend and weaker, so not really penetrating that milder airstream into the very far north with those temperatures remaining very hot across the north over the weekend and into next week. Further south, we will be seeing a, a milder weekend coming up with those um, with that trough coming through and just being in a southerly airstream. So really, we're not expecting a lot of rainfall with this system as it comes across. Those high bases are quite high, only a couple of millimetres at best across the southern agricultural area up until the end of Sunday. The very far northeast as that trough moves up through there and the far west near um, WA border. Great. Well, yes, certainly a day for more air conditioning, it seems. It's pretty hot yes, out there. That's thanks. right. Thanks for that, Wendy. Wendy Horvat, that's not Wendy, Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology there. And in the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be sunny. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 20 to 25 degrees, so pretty warm overnight. But uh, the day, that's getting rather warm, up to 40 degrees. The lower western will be sunny. Overnight there, dropping to 18 to 22 degrees. And again, the daytime temperatures also reaching about 40 degrees. I've got more to come on the country. We're going to be looking a lot at the river um, and looking at... uh, the water recovery plans as well as what people are doing as they move back into their flooded houses. More to come on the country as we approach uh, 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I hope you're having a lovely day today. It is rather warm out there across South Australia and into the far west of New South Wales. Now, if you've never been through a flood, you can probably only imagine what the clean-up job would be like. The mud, the gets into everything. It would be just awful. It would smell terrible. There'd be so many things to do. So uh, that is the reality facing people living along the Darling and River Murray at the moment. Uh, People in Menindee barely had days to prepare before the Darling River there overflowed into homes. There was that influx that came in at rather short notice. And six weeks later, they are now heading home to quite a site genuine shock for some. I think um, even some that have been through it, this is pretty high, so um, just under the 76 level, it's a couple hundred million under 76, but certainly, um, yeah, people are surprised by the furniture and stuff that was up, lifted up in, inside that's been uh, removed or floated up uh, with, with the height of the water we've had. Oh, it'd be just horrible. So I'll have an update on how people in Menindee are going following the flooding there and also take a look at how the Murray-Darling Basin water recovery plans are going with the latest report card out. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, landlords and real estate agents in SA could soon be banned from soliciting rent bidding between prospective tenants. Median rents in Adelaide have reached a record high, which the state government claims is leading to rent bidding. That's where tenants are encouraged to offer above the advertised rental price. Residents say they're concerned a proposed wind farm off the coast of Port Macdonnell could have adverse effects on the local fishing industry. Blue Float Energy has revealed the plans for more than 70 wind turbines to be built around 8 to 20 kilometres off the coast. It's waiting to be granted a provisional permit before it conducts further environmental and community impact studies.
And the opposition wants an independent inquiry to look into the removal of dozens of South Australian local government members due to unsubmitted paperwork. At least four mayors are among 45 councillors who failed to submit gift disclosure forms to the state's electoral commission on time. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, the latest report card on the Murray-Darling Basin shows there has been barely any improvement in the last six months and some important elements of the basin plan won't be done by the 2024 deadline. Released this week, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority's report on the last six months was highly critical of New South Wales for holding back progress of the plan by failing to submit the required water sharing plans. Warwick Long spoke with CEO of the MG Andrew McConville. Yeah, our task is to report transparently on progress. And you know, while we found some minor improvement in some areas, yep, there has been a lack of progress in others. So you know, it's important we get that information out there to be able to ensure that people understand there's still more work to be done, absolutely. So what are you saying about the state of the plan and the ability now to hit the 2024 targets? Well, look, I think, you know, there's been some positive progress in New South Wales water resource plans. You know, at the end of December, there were four plans accredited. We've seen, you know, some progress on the supply and constraints measures uh, in terms of projects being underway and completed, but there still is a significant amount of work to be done there. And then also in the Northern Basin, uh, some of the measures as part of the Northern Basin toolkit are running behind schedule. So what we're saying is we've got to keep the shoulder to the wheel because, making progress across all areas is absolutely critical to you know, seeing the Basin Plan delivered in full work. You've got about 16 months before the June 2024 deadline is hit. What is the least likely to be achieved by then? Well, look, I think, you know, we've came out last November and, and, and talked about the uh, the Sidland projects and, and that we, we do see that there will uh, be a shortfall there. Um, you know, we won't know exactly what that is until we get to, to 2024 and make that reconciliation. But So these are the projects that the, the states put forward to say, we'll do some work if you reduce correct. the amount of water that is required for the basin yeah, authority. Yeah, that, 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 that's correct. So, you know, it's a bit like getting some water on credit and then and then the projects are the repayment of that. So you know, we, we announced in, in November that we felt that there'd be a a shortfall of somewhere between 190 and 300 gigs and, and, you know, we'll continue to make the assessments as we go forward, keeping in mind that the actual reconciliation doesn't occur until 24. Um, and keeping in mind also, Warwick, you know, we issue these reports every every six months and that transparency is really important. But there are certainly challenges ahead. And as the Minister has said on, on numerous occasions as well, um, you know, the, the achievement of the efficiency measures to cover the 450 gigalitres of extra environmental water, um, you know, that won't be achieved and remains very challenging. On the subject of water resource plans, there's there's mm. sort of two separate report grades here, so to speak. One which is very positive for Victoria, Queensland, South Australia and the ACT, saying those plans are done and progress is on track. Mm. For New South Wales, mm. though, this report is highly critical with literally the opposite result in the red for New South Wales on the report card. Why are New South Wales so far behind? Well, it's probably a question better directed to New South Wales, although I would say you know, as of today, uh, we have received the the remaining New South Wales water resource plans. Now, New South Wales had the largest sort of component to do most of the heavy lifting. They had 20 of the 33 plans. And yes, the report was at a point in time in December and at that stage four had been uh, accredited and we had received a number of uh, other plans for, for assessment. Uh, as of today, literally today, 
uh, you know, the New South Wales Minister has announced that the remainder of those plans have, have been uh, submitted for assessment. So, so you, know, you we'll have, have all to, 20 now? We now have all 20 plans, Warwick, and we'll have to go through the very extensive progress process of assessing them, you know, against all 55 requirements that water resource plans are assessed against, and that's going to take some time. Convenient timing from New South Wales, isn't it? Oh, look, I won't speculate on that, Warwick. We're very pleased that we've got them and, and you know, our task is now to, to get in and, and, and make that assessment against the requirements. It's a very extensive process. How hmm. long do you need to work through those plans before you can accredit them? Will that be done look, by 2024? Uh, look, it, it's a decision ultimately for the Minister to, to accredit them. The, the authority will make recommendations. Look, they, they are significant documents and they do take a considerable amount of time. I really wouldn't want to speculate as to how long that would take, Warwick. Uh, and just on the subject of water recovery, which is a lo- what a lot of people see the Murray-Darling Basin Plan as, uh, you say you 98% of surface water, 92% of groundwater is recovered. The little bits that you're being held back are, is due to the New South Wales water, res- water resource plan. So will that be reconciled in the near future, do you think? Well, look, I mean, the, the important piece with New South Wales w- or WRP is it brings the states within the regulatory framework of the Inspector General and, and until those water resource plans are accredited by the Minister, we sort of have to put in place, um, if you like, different oversight arrangements. So bringing you know, all of the states into the regulatory framework, I think that is I- incredibly important. In terms of the water recovery task, yeah, there is a component of bridging the gap. Now, that's not directly related to New South Wales WRPs. That's a that's across the basin where there are um, you know some areas of, of, of shortfall to uh, recover that water. And then the second component is to look at the 605 gigalitres of supply and constraints and then the 450 of environmental. So you sort of got to view it in those, those three boxes, if you like, Warwick. CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Andrew McConville, speaking there with Warwick Long. Now, looking at it from a South Australian point of view, the head of South Australia's irrigation body says states and territories that have already completed water projects under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan should be rewarded. SA Murray Irrigators Chair Karen Martin says she'd like to see additional funding for those who have met the plan's requirements to encourage others to do the right thing. She says it's no surprise the latest Murray-Darling Basin Authority report card shows it's unlikely the plan will be achieved by the June 2024 deadline. Within our state, we're quite compliant. Our water resource plan is in and accredited. We're finessing the details. We've still got issues with carryover and it's certainly in our interest for the other states to finish their water resource plans and to deliver for their environment so that you get the whole of system flow on effect and the resilience built throughout the whole system. So if they don't do their bits of it, it makes our efforts cheapened and not as effective. And also it's just that good faith. Everybody's signed on. Everybody's trying to achieve it. So let's help those that are struggling to get their bits done and let's finish the whole thing. On the environment, Karen, obviously it's been a bit of an interesting time over the last, you know, three to six months with flooding right across, um, yeah, eastern Australia and also south Australia with the Murray. How has that changed things or, or has it at all? Oh, it's certainly given the environment a boost and when they talk about building resilience, this goes a long way. It's chucked a lot of resilience into the the floodplain ecosystems. The frog breeding cycles, the tree recruitment, the whole suite of ecology has had a massive boost and the resilience that will be built off the back of this will go on for many a year. And they need to now monitor and measure and, and really look at okay, you've had the big natural environmental flow, you've backed it up with a release of some environmental managed flow, 
to have that impact where you've got an ecological response. How much resilience have you built? How much of an ecological response did you generate? And let's um, pat each other on the back and say, hey, we've done some pretty good river management here. What, what are your thoughts on how everything is sitting? You talked about wanting a bit more detail, you know, from, from the powers, whether it be, you know, associations or governments or whoever. Um, what, what do the irrigators specifically want to know to yeah, know how we can meet this, this plan in its entirety? Well, it's all different for each state. And like I said, one of the biggest things is New South Wales getting their water resource plans in but that couples with the federal and state governments negotiating on how to finish the sustainable diversion limit infrastructure projects. And this report does talk about eight of those being able to be completed, six of are maybe, and all the rest are probably going to fail. So there's a lot of rescoping and renegotiating and recounting for those projects to um, make sure that they recover the water for the environment through those infrastructure spends that they promised that they would. And if they don't, how on earth are they going to address that? So that's the sort of detail I want. And that comes from a federal and a state level. And depending on where the infrastructure was planned for, mostly New South Wales, then it's that state government that has has to let us know what they plan to do. So that sort of thing I'd like to hear from it is, again, I'm picking on New South Wales, but, but they're the ones that seem to be dragging their feet. So, yeah, we all need that. We all need them to get on with these infrastructure projects and to commit with the federal government to account and audit them properly and to finish them. And, yeah, anything we can do to assist that for them, we'd love to help. In terms of the deadline itself, you know, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is even saying that it's unlikely to be achieved by the June 2024 deadline. Um, there, there is still that formal evaluation that's going to happen in 25 and the review in 2026. Uh, you know, is there any point going ahead with the evaluation and review? Oh, you won't stop it because that's the nature of the bureaucratic beast. So I've come to accept that that is a reality and you've got to let the bureaucrats do that so they can realise that they've got more work to do. However, it doesn't let various players off the hook it will come to the same conclusion that we all already know that there's more work to be done. So don't like to get bogged down in the review processes as such in that sometimes it can stifle good action. Yeah, I think people of all management persuasions in all jurisdictions need to start looking at actions and outcomes from these actions and prioritise the ones that actually do achieve real outcomes. And then we'll, we'll get some real runs on the board and the pennies will add up to pounds. So... Yeah, I think that's how they need to approach it, but they're not going to make the deadline and I think that's no surprise to anybody. I think that we've been kicking the can down the road long enough on this issue that there needs to maybe start to be some penalties for missing deadlines from here on in because it really is unfair to those who have met the deadlines and for the work that they've put in and the investments that they've put in that they're now at an economic loss and a trade loss and a market loss because others aren't doing their bit. So, yeah, I think we've gone into a new realm of what do you do if someone just continuously doesn't doesn't get their end of the bargain done. So, yeah, like I said, we'd like to assist all governments to make sure that, that everyone's doing what they said they would do. What sort of penalty do you think would be appropriate in this circumstance? I think possibly budgets to allow those that have complied to go to the next step and that might be something more rewarding for their people or into the more innovative space of how you manage things or or the wish list projects that are always too expensive. They don't hit the proper sort of cost benefit analysis. But, you know, if you're always at a disadvantage for doing the right thing, then maybe it's time that we could look at those more expensive projects and put them in place. And maybe that would incentivize those that aren't doing the right thing to hurry up and start doing it.
so that we can all move into the next generation of, of management and the next, the next era of river sustainability. SA Murray Irrigators, Karen Martin, uh, she's the uh, chair, speaking with Anita Ward. Now, uh, a lot of the, the water use takes place in the Riverland, but the Riverland is going through quite a lot at the moment uh, with the, these fruit fly outbreaks. Work has started on the extension of the National Sterile Insect Facility at Port Augusta to double the operational output. That will mean 40 million sterile Queensland fruit flies will be produced a week when that is complete. The state government anticipates the bill will be finished in time to start releasing the extra sterile flies when That's It campaign recommences and that will happen after the expected pause over winter when the flies are less active. There are 27 outbreak locations in South Australia at the moment with the current end date for all areas being May. However, that could change if there are further fruit fly detections as well. More to come, though, on uh, the recovery process in Menindee as well in the far west of New South Wales and the thoughts of some of the uh, fishers and people living around Port Macdonald with uh, this proposal for uh, a wind farm out at sea. That's all coming up in the next 15 minutes. It's a quarter to one. Get your garden ready for autumn with the March issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Select some gorgeous ground covers, grow herbs for the cooler months and choose your favourite bulbs for spring colour. Learn about gardening on a steep slope, the wonders of compost and the benefits of chook tractors. And read about the amazing revegetation of a tropical Queensland island. Gardening Australia magazine, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. I remember in late December, Menindee residents in the far west of New South Wales were given notice of a major flood that was about to affect their community. Those in low-lying areas around the Darling River were ordered or told to prepare to evacuate. Now, some six weeks later, with the water receding, some residents are starting to make their way back into their flood-affected homes and properties. Graham McCrabb is the captain of the Menindee Rural Fire Service. His team have been on the ground there since day one, and he told Andrew Schmidt about the confronting scenes that residents residents have seen as they've moved back in? Genuine shock for some. I think um, even some that have been through it, this is pretty high. So um, just under the 76 level, it's a couple hundred million under 76, but certainly, um, yeah, people are surprised by the furniture and stuff that was up, lifted up in, inside that's been uh, removed or floated up uh, with, with the height of the water we've had. So, yeah, there's certainly, um, uh, yeah, it's a stark reality when you first go in. In terms of numbers, Graham, I mean, uh, of the people that were forced to, to leave their homes and their properties, uh, Will we say at this stage that possibly the majority have returned? There's still a few that haven't? I think there'd be, uh, of the permanent residents, I still think there'd be uh, the half that wouldn't be back in there yet. I, I think there'd be um, five, six or seven that aren't back in. So you obviously spoke to a resident yesterday. He's only, uh, we only able to pump his track out uh, last week and it's only really dry enough to get in there. I'd assume he'd be driving into there today for the first time, I would have thought. So there's a number. So he's, he's probably the worst case, but... There's a number of been at that level that it's uh, one thing to get the water off. It takes another week or better to dry out to be able to get access. So, no, it's a slow process. And, and the rule blow for the, for these people is that, you know, they're forced to leave their property. But, you know, having been out now, and we're probably talking, what, six to eight weeks in that sort of time frame, to go back and just look what confronts them. And many of them have, you know, lived there for a long time. And this particular person I spoke to, his property or his home's rather newish. It must be heartbreaking. Yeah, very much so. I think it's a battle to, to the, 
uh, we, we understand, I suppose, we live in a remote area and it's hard to get things, but uh, insurance assessors, uh, we've been waiting for them pro- probably over a week now. So uh, people are reluctant to touch stuff till the assessor's been through. So that's, um, that's slowing up that process of allowing people to get on with it. And I think, um, you know, the, you talk about the cruelty of floods. It's, a, it's been a long, slow process to build up. It's hard work when the water's coming through and then certainly it's a drawn-out process at this point of the of this event as well. Yeah, and we understand those assessors uh, were expected on the ground yesterday, but they're now saying possibly today they'll be there? I'm hoping today. I haven't heard today, to be honest. So, yeah, a bit disappointed that, uh, that there wasn't some here yesterday. So there's a number of houses that we could be in, at least removing the furniture and giving people... Um, I, I think there's, there's that sense of relief that, that it looks like a job that's just insurmountable when you first open the door. With a little bit of help and a bit of water and stuff, all of a sudden, you, you clean it out, you get rid of the furniture that's um, no good and, and you start to see the bare bones again. That uh, it, it gives people a bit of hope. So I think by delaying that process, it doesn't help um, people's mental state. The process, though, is, and, and look, let's just say, OK, there's an assurance assessor on the ground today and he comes to your property. And in the case of the person I spoke to yesterday, he believes he may have to rebuild. Now, if that's the case, you've got to go through the insurance process. You then got to say, okay, we now need to go and find somebody who can come in and do some work on the property. You're possibly talking a 12 month period, but I mean, as you know, you're not going to get somebody next month or in the next three months. No, absolutely not. No, no, and that that uh, yeah, that's a it's a long time, and it's a it's a, um yeah, it's sad to watch from the outside. I suppose that's similar to bushfire in some ways, but flood is uh, um flood seems to be a lot slower and a lot um uh, I don't know. It, it, there's just no way of changing it, really. So, um, and like we say, we're sitting in there two months after the event. Bush I had a winter on the 28th of December. We, we'd be well past this point now. We're really just getting assessors in. So, yeah, it's a long, slow, cool um, operation. And many of these people, Graham, understand that we'll had to leave Menindee. Uh, some have been living in caravans. Some have had to sort other forms of accommodation. Uh, it's been a, a rather tumultuous time for them. Yeah, there's no doubt. So, uh, uh, and, and it's hard, I suppose, you learn that the how the system works, but recovery are restricted to helping people that don't have insurance and, and it's their primary place of residence. So that, that reduces the number of people they can help. They certainly have reached out and helped others that have insurance and, and as it's just dragging on, they certainly haven't um, shied away from, from stepping up to those situations as well to try and help facilitate better outcomes for people. But yeah, it's, it's, it is yeah, it's hard work. Uh, now, the Rural Fire Service, which you're, you're the captain of locally, uh, is there a specific task that you've been allocated or work you're currently carrying out? Compiled a list of names at the start. We think we're probably only missing one phone number there now. Uh, several of the volunteers contacted those people and just really reached out and said, you know, if you need help, just ask. So uh, we've varied from um, from pumping water out to giving access to driveways to obviously the, the basic stuff of, of clean-up, washouts, etc. So, yeah, what you'd expect. But certainly a lot more pumping than what I thought at the start. So... We've had a number of pumps uh, working, high flow and small ones. They're working really now for probably four weeks. Yeah, it's a good community. I'm sure people will get the help they need, but it's a long wait. Insurance assessors are working all along the river, I can imagine, and obviously it's quite remote out there, but it is tough waiting around when you can't do anything until someone comes and looks over your place. That was Graham McCabe from the uh, Menindee Rural Fire Service speaking with Andrew Schmidt there, and we'll keep uh, touching base with those people who are dealing with uh, moving back into their homes that have been flooded. Finally today, though, a potential offshore wind farm has caused controversy with fishers at Port Macdonnell in the state's southeast. Blue Float Energy announced its aspirations to build a 77 turbine wind farm off the town's coast last year, which would generate 1.1 gigawatts of clean energy. But locals are concerned about the impact this project could have on the local water sea life. Blue Float Energy country manager Nick Sankey says the studies still need to be completed on the potential impacts of the project. 
Swiftboat Energy is a European-based offshore wind specialist developer developing projects across Europe, South America, Asia, Australia and New Zealand. So Bluefoot Energy has four projects within Australia. Uh, we have uh, two in Victoria, uh, South Australia area and two in New South Wales. Southern Winds is our project that sits in Commonwealth waters but off the South Australian coast between Cape Douglas in South Australia and uh, uh, going into Nelson in Victoria. It's approximately eight kilometres is the closest point to the coast and extends out to 20 kilometres from the coast. The Southern Wind Project is proposing to have 77 uh, offshore wind turbines and two offshore substations with a cable that will connect into the grid uh, around the Portland area. 20 kilometres off the coastline. Could you see that? You can't, you can't see that, can you? You will be able to. On a, uh, on, on a clear day, you'll be able to see the, uh, the turbines on the horizon. So what we're doing is um, we've had a local photographer go down to various points along the coast and take some panoramic photos, and we've, uh, we're doing a visual simulation of what you may be able to see on a, on a clear day from, from various spots. So we'll be launching that soon on our project website, and people will be able to go in and click on a, a spot on the coast and, uh, and have a representation of what you may be able to see on a very clear day. I think last time we checked in with this project, uh, an exact location hadn't quite been determined. Mm-hmm. So that is now definitely located? Yes, yeah. Um, well, yeah, we are proposing to locate in that area. We are subject to the Commonwealth Government declaring a zone within this area. So at the moment, uh, we're not able to apply for a licence to, uh, to deploy monitoring equipment or to continue our studies. The Commonwealth Government has flagged um, by the Minister for Energy that they intend to look at the Southern Ocean region of Portland. So we believe that our project will be within an area to be declared by the Commonwealth Government, but, um, but we are waiting for that formal declaration to occur. Does the proposed area fall within a marine park? No, no, none, none, of our, none of our proposed site area falls within a marine park. Blue Float Energy Country Manager Nick Sankey speaking with Beck Chave. An information drop-in session was held in the town this week uh, to look at the project with the community attending to ask questions on the potential impact. Reporter Elsie Adamo attended the session to hear firsthand how local fishers felt about the potential of an offshore wind farm. Brodie Milstead, farmer, fisherman. So what's brought you into the information session tonight? Oh, just the destruction it's going to have in the environment plus our businesses. So we know it's going to affect it. So no matter what their studies say, we know it will affect our, you know, our businesses and the environment, the whales, everything that lives there. It's going to yeah. affect the whole lot. I'm not worried just for the industry, I'm worried for everything. So the act of putting them in you think will just disrupt the environment there that you wouldn't be able to fish anymore the whole ecosystem yeah Yeah. so are you happy with how tonight's gone have you have they answered your questions not really because they don't know and they're only talking around every question that we ask and you mentioned before during the session your father i'm guessing was a fisherman as well and you're hoping it's something you could pass on to your kids and do you think this could jeopardize that oh definitely because they're saying oh you know it can create jobs for the southeast but they're talking six to eleven years my business is going to support my family for generations Jeremy Ivans, and I'm a rock lobster fisherman from Port Mac. I've just come to a bit of a listen to what they've got to say and yeah, find out a bit more information about what they're proposing. And uh, are you for it? Are you against it? Well, how do you feel about it? I think I'm like everyone that's here today, pretty much against it. There's a lot of, I don't know, people worry, a lot of questions people want to know and there's not a lot of answers they're actually giving. 
at this stage. So I feel like this is just a process where they're just, they've got to have some sort of consult with the community and they're ticking that off their list of what they need to do next. Now that it's all done, have you felt like your questions have been answered? No, no, not one bit. So... So pretty concerned? I wouldn't like to see it go ahead here. I don't, I don't think it's needed. I think there's probably more efficient ways of getting power and energy yeah, than sticking a heap of 70-odd wind farms out at sea with all the risks that goes with it. So. so a real risk to your livelihood if they were to go out? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, there's restrictions that will happen. There will be impacts on um, yeah, the environment where they're putting them in. Also, like uh, the fish side of it, you know, does it, the vibrations in the, through the water actually do anything to all the you know, ecosystem and that? Hi, my name's Jason Fulham. I'm from Port McDonald Fishing Charters and I've also got a rock lobster licence here at Port McDonald. So what brought you out to the information session tonight? Uh, well, obviously there's this proposal with wind farms being put in, in our area and um, obviously it's going to affect everybody here. And yeah. And are you concerned about how it might be impacting your business and, and fishing activities? Yeah, I think it will. I think it'll be a big impact on it. There's... Um, you know, we have the tuna migration that comes through here and where they're proposing to build them is exactly where the tuna come through and, you know, the bird life that, you know, feed on the fish that the tuna bring to the surface will be affected by these wind farms as well. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to say how much it'll affect them, but mm, I think it'll affect me greatly. Do you think it could impact the tourism industry as well, of people coming here? Well, that's what I do. I'm a tourist operator, so, yeah, I think it'll be huge impact if these deter the fish from coming here and um, and they're not here well then obviously my uh, people don't come to go fishing with me and you spent quite a long time speaking to the representatives they had here do you feel like your questions have been answered oh look he's he's good to talk to but you know they're a business and um, they're here to consultate with obviously the public and propose that they're doing the right things to uh, to the community I suppose Brody Milstead, Jason Fullen and Jeremy Levines speaking with Elsie Adamo there about the plans to build a wind farm off the coast of Port Macdonald. And we'll keep seeing how, following how that goes. Certainly some concerns there within the community, but it's still in the planning process at the moment. What's not in the planning process is Sonia Feldhoff's show this afternoon. It's all ready to go, isn't it? It's always a work in progress <laughs> because, of course, you listen, you can change the direction that we head uh, should you wish to. But at the moment, what we're going to be talking about, have you ever gone to a specialist, um, and particularly in recent times, and turned up and not realised the extent of the cost to which you will be contributing to that that um, procedure or test or anything like that. Um, there have been some recent Medicare changes, which means you might get an even bigger shock uh, when you go for some of the major tests at the moment, particularly around women's health. Uh, and now this was all prompted by a text that we had. We've looked at this a bit further and we'll bring you some of the responses as to why that's the case at the moment. Uh, also, apparently 42% of South... 42? Yeah, I think it's 42% of South Australian households have solar panels on their roofs. I wish uh, I did. Yeah, almost half of South Australian households, pretty much close to. But some of you may still be getting a bill each quarter. Not a, as big a bill, but you still may be getting a bill. We've got an expert on someone who's worked in the industry for 25 years with some advice and tips on 
what you can be doing to save energy if you have that situation. That's my big saving goal, if saving is remotely possible yeah. <laughs> again, because <laughs> it's certainly not happening at the moment, but is to put on um, solar, the solar panel. panel. So I'd be interested to hear that. Keep listening to your ABC local radio. There's a lot to come up this afternoon with Sonia Feldoff, but that's it from me as we approach one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.